Remedy Drive's David Zock has joined The Antidote. David, I really can't believe it's been three years since you were last on the show. It's great to have you back. It's good to be back. It does feel like it was yesterday. (laughs) Is that just because we're both getting older? Yeah, time, we experience time differently as we age, and then the time warp of the last, you know, 18 months, I'm sure contributes to it. Absolutely. The last time you were here, we spoke about the music of Remedy Drive, of course, but we also spoke about your involvement with the Exodus Road. Maybe I should have you give us an overview of what that organization does. The Exodus Road is a counter-trafficking organization that we have tethered our rock and roll band to in these last eight years. And uh, the Exodus Road specializes in finding evidence of trafficking, especially sex trafficking of minors. That's not to say that we only help in that particular area of trafficking, but uh, we partner with authorities, we partner with police or law enforcement to uh, help dismantle these criminal networks and help assist in the process that provides freedom from people who are currently enslaved. What countries are they involved in? We're in India. We have an amazing team of women and men in India. We're in the United States, Southeast Asia, which is the region including Cambodia and Thailand and Vietnam and Myanmar and Philippines. And then we're in Latin America as well. And we're careful what countries specifically to talk about, especially down there, because there's so many you know, criminal networks with ties back home. And we want to protect our teams, but we also want to protect the operations that are usually ongoing. Understandable. Well, you know how Christians are famous for telling others to walk the talk. (laughs) You know, I think it's an overused saying, but doesn't that actually sum up the work that you're doing with the Exodus Road? Yeah, and that phrase, it wasn't until recent years that I realized that most of us, when we say walk the walk, we actually mean talk the talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because that is what most of our energy and time and effort and currency is, is used on is for praying and singing. And in my case, you know, singing. And, and so I'm thankful that I found like in the words of Frederick Douglass, he said, I prayed for 20 years and he was praying about being freed from slavery. And he says he never got an answer until he prayed with his feet. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) You know, I first picked up on what you were doing when Remedy Drive released Commodity back in 2014 and the title track really laid out your intentions but at that time did you ever imagine that you'd be releasing a trilogy of albums about human trafficking man i thought it'd be a song i thought it would be this song commodity which turned into a full-length record and now it's part of a trilogy of socially minded anti-human trafficking um hopeful justice orientated albums Well, Commodity was the first of the trilogy, as I'd said. The second was The North Star, which actually became my top pick for 2018. The final installment is out now, Imago Amor. Did I say that right or wrong? (laughs) Well, I don't speak Latin, so you could be right, but I've always said Imago Amor. So, you know, you guys say words differently anyways up in Canada, so to each their own. (laughs) Or I should say we say them differently down here. It's all a matter of perspective. But tell me, was it a stretch for you to create the three albums? No, it wasn't, because there's just so many stories that need to be told. There's so many stories of pain and sorrow, so many stories of hope. I thought that I'd run out of things to say, 
but I really looked at this album as if this is the last thing I could say, and specifically the last song on this album, if this was the last word and then that last note that I get the privilege of telling the stories of these girls that are created in the image of the divine, that are defiant and yet resigned to their fate. Um, how would I, how would I write it if, if, as if I was writing my last, my last chapter of this chapter, which it, it surely is not the last chapter. It would have to be a trilogy because I don't even know what you call four albums consecutively. Well, you got, you know, you have several trilogies in the Star Wars saga and then, you know, Rogue One. What's Rogue One? It's just its own standalone thing, you know? So <laughs> I, I don't feel confined by the, by the terminology. Remedy Drive has so much more music than just the trilogy. You know, when I was setting up our talk, I took a look at my music files and that's when I realized I actually have 128 songs from your band. Wow. I mean, that's a wild number. It makes it seem as if songwriting is easy for you. But is it? No. Um, it's a wrestle. It's a struggle. Especially when I'm writing melodies that I just absolutely love. Or in the case on like the song Burn Bright on Mago Moore. My brother Philip had released that song in particular as a uh, just a soundtrack for a contest that a film company was putting out to aspiring, you know, soundtrack writers. Mm-hmm. And he, he didn't win, so I'm like, man, that just moves me just the way that baseline and everything. Can can we try to to make that into something? So then I have this weight of doing justice to such an awesome baseline that he wrote, you know, or the other way around um, when I have. A thought that on the Mago more in particular, a lot of the the ideas of the songs have started from things that some of my friends that do undercover work alongside me. We all wish that there's things we could say to some of these girls that are still enslaved that we can't because we maintain our cover. And so it feels so important to get those songs right and to get those melodies right. So it's never easy, although it is it is important. It's fun. It's um. It's healing in many ways, but it's not easy. So what do you think dominates then in your music? Should it be music itself or should it be the lyrics? I think that that the music itself is enough. Um, There is something about melodies that poke through into a different realm. Melodies alone can change our lives. In the same way that, I don't know who said this quote, but somebody said you you can look at a, uh, a painting every day and never think about it as you walk by it. But you can also look at a painting one time and think about it the rest of your life. And that's the power of art. Art in general reminds us oftentimes that something's not right, but also in such a kind and gentle and subtle way, if, if we're willing to sit with that, art can, can remind us that, that there's potential for hope, that, there, that something is right. That would be enough if that's all I ever did, I think. That would be answering what tugs at my heartstrings. So I wish I didn't have to put lyric to it, to be honest, but I think lyric's important too, because poetry does the same thing that painting and melodies do. So you combine a few of those mediums together, and that is what it takes for me. That's what woke me up to justice work, was the combination of visuals and audio and poetry combined together in several different times that I can point back to. What about you on a personal level? Has there been a single piece of art in any form that's really affected you dramatically? Uh, Victor Hugo's um, 
Les Miserables, I first encountered it in um, musical form. I've seen it many different times, both with the reenactment of you know movie. Uh, there was a series on Les Mis recently. But the ideas that that came across, I didn't realize there was an agenda to that until later on in life. And I can see how the agenda of everybody involved in that, it succeeded. And the agenda is simply to regard our fellow human beings as made in the image of the divine. So it's not so much an agenda. Agenda carries a kind of a, a bad connotation for some people, but there is a purpose of that art. And looking back, I can see how it changed my my perspective and my life. Well, why don't we jump into the album itself? Dragons leads off Imago Amor. And the chorus says, This is a storm that we can weather. We're turning numbers into names in these days. But you know, ever since COVID began, I think my attitude has been pretty negative. Yeah. So I have a hard time believing that people won't be numbers any longer. You really think that's possible? Well, it's possible for me and you. You know, if, I don't know how familiar you are with Les Mis, but at the beginning, you know, the white evangelical character in there, obviously he wasn't, but that's that's how I was convicted as an evangelical. He was very moralistic. He, he uh, saw everything in black and white, and he only referred to Jean Valjean. He only referred to him by his assigned prison number. And... It doesn't matter whether or not governments or church institutions or uh, politicians or pundits or partisan players continue to reduce others to numbers. As soon as you and I acknowledge that that person's a name, Mm -hmm. as soon as we identify them as something other than a commodity, something as a mere product to be bought and sold and marketed at or marketed to, then it doesn't matter we put that energy back into the atmosphere. We put that truth, that reality, and there's a power behind that that we will never see in our lifetime. But the humanizing, in, in a world of dehumanizing language, a demonizing language, and world of enemy-centeredness and us versus them, anything that pushes against that ever so slightly is the widow's might, man. It's the widow's might. It's the five loaves of bread and two fish. I'm sure of it. You mentioned about your Christianity being black and white when you first became a Christian. Are you still that way now? Maybe uh, with one exception, I would say no. But when it comes to Scripture's mandate 2,100 times, our responsibility and the instruction of Jesus Christ, the instruction of His prophets when it comes to how we treat and talk about and interact with the most marginalized and the most vulnerable and the poorest in our society— That's pretty black and white to me. Jesus says, you know, go into the whole world and describe what I've described to them and instruct people to follow in these ways. And what way was he talking about? He distilled it down to the same thing that Lemez distilled it down to, to love another person, is to see the face of God. In the words of prophet Jeremiah, he says that God says he took the cause of the oppressed. Isn't that what it means to know me? Says the Lord God Almighty. And so everything else has, for me, blurred a little bit on the edges. You know, we just had a big denominational conference in in downtown Nashville yesterday, and I was driving through. I didn't know it was there. It was triggering for me to see, just within one denomination, all the infighting, and and then the ignoring of justice issues for the sake of power and wealth and cultural dominance. I'm content, and I stand by the words that I wrote to my son. I don't have all the answers. 
but there's one thing that's that's cut and dry, and that is how we respond to to the emergencies that exist in our lifetime as it pertains to the vulnerable and those without representation, those exiled from their homes because of war and violence and starvation and uh, natural disaster. Well, that ties into something that I heard you once say in a video, that you want to see people rise up out of their indifference to human trafficking. Is this really indifference, or could it just be a lack of awareness? At this point, it's a matter of priorities. I'm not talking to everybody, everybody at large. When it comes to those claiming to follow in the way of Jesus Christ, like William Wilberforce said, you can choose to look the other way, but you can never again say you did not know. I have never met anybody that hasn't heard about what's going on at this point. In 2020 and 2021, no. In 2010, maybe. In 2015, maybe. But at this point, you know, in my country, uh, powerful, rich corporations just won amazingly against enslaved people. Um, there were some, I think, six boys that were enslaved at the benefit of two major chocolatiers. It went all the way to our Supreme Court, and our Supreme Court sided with wealth and power over the cause of the poor and powerless. So that wasn't a matter of, of not knowing, that was a matter of seeing what it would take to start to put a dent in this darkness. But as we have a long history of doing so, and worshiping at the monuments of Mars, the god of war, and, uh, and uh, Mammon, we give so much there. Then there's a reason why we compromise. It's because it benefits us. Thing everybody wants to care and post about it, but when it comes to siding with a world superpower, Scripture's just filled with stories of, of people that follow in the way set forth by Isaiah and solidified by Jesus, that they spoke truth to those systems of power, and they said, that's immoral. There's a better way. But it's going to affect our bottom line. That's a problem. I know I had this discussion. I said, when you go head-to-head with capitalism, it seems that capitalism always wins. If it's an idol, and that's the proof of it, of the idolatry of it, and obviously capitalism has lost its way. Like Bob Dylan says, I don't really define myself in those terms. I don't think about myself in a partisan way. I just can't. The world's too big, and it's too complicated. But there is a push in my lifetime. I'm 42, so all through the 80s up until now, the representation that the most powerful in our society get is becoming more and more disadvantaged. And there's scriptures about that, giving fair wages and not withholding a living wage and seeking the interest of the refugees in our society. I don't see it as, as an apathy issue as much as a, a knowing calculated response and making metaphor out of things in scripture that are pretty cut and dry. So I'm sounding legalistic, even though I tried so hard to shed that part of who I am. I've just kind of turned it. So I can see people making fun of me for <laughs> claiming to have repented of my legalism, my closed-mindedness. And there are going to be plenty of people dressed in their Sunday best. They're able to walk by. They see the man beaten up on the side of the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. They look, and then they walk. They have the talking and the praying and the singing to do, you know, and the arguing about theology. They got to go do that. That's what they're putting all their money for. 98%, I don't know about Canada, but... 98% on average of the budgets of the church building culture goes to singing and praying and talking. There are some crumbs, and those crumbs excite me, uh, but there are crumbs left over for the poor. And But when I, I don't want to not say it's happening, I just saw Josh from the Afters. He had a Guatemalan family that had just walked all the way through Central America, through Mexico, to the southern border of the United States. 
and without anybody. There should be a massive number of loving, caring individuals following Jesus to the border to welcome and to take in and take the cause and give water and give food and give shelter to those beautiful human beings, precious in the sight of the Creator, that are being demonized by our society. And at that point, it's not complicated. For the man that looked, saw the guy beat up in the ditch and said, I'm going to stop where I'm going and I'm going to take time out of my life, take time out of my finances to make sure that, that this man receives the help he needs. Where is that, man? I want to see it. And when I do see it, it's beautiful and I celebrate it. I think that could be the root of the song on the album that's called Using My Name. What was it that pushed your buttons to make you record that? Well, it's not that we're not able to rally when the cause fits into our benefit. And in 2020, I saw a lot of people that have always been like, man, we're not going to worry about social issues. We're not going to worry about the poor. Let's just preach the gospel. Those people really come to their own defense last year. This persecution complex that's so pushed by a lot of the powerful people in Christian culture in the United States. I'd never seen that level of organizing before in my country. People willing to look out for our own interests and our own rights and our own privileges that have been quiet on justice issues told us they're talking about justice issues to shut up and just preach the gospel. So for me, as a, as a songwriter at a Christian record label, where all of our labels are owned by, whether it's what people call the so-called worship music industry or the Christian music industry, they're owned by major corporations. And I don't necessarily have an issue with that. But when I went forward and I said, I have to make this music in particular to take the cause of oppressed and enslaved and exiled people, and having a, a record label executive tell me over coffee, David, he said, I'm a whore and I just need you to give me something I can sell. Something in my heart sank. And that was around the time that I was reading the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Amos. And they both say something along the lines of, stop with your singing. Stop with your songs and your gatherings and your festivals. The God of the universe is plugging his ears when you pray because you plugged your ears to the cries of the poor. So go and do justice, and then then start up the band again. I was scared to release this song, to be honest, Dave. So when I put it out, I put about 50 scripture references in the footnotes, just so people know it's not me saying it. I plagiarized it all from the prophets and Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a tough thing. They have to deal with those kind of people. The money has taken over their faith. Yeah, and I think the money has taken over the whole movement. Like, it's an incredible business model. And it creates a lot of wealth for a lot of people inside of it. And then also stuck inside it are a lot of amazing people that have been misguided and misled. And so in the same way that there's 40 million people enslaved on my watch, I do believe that doing a little bit matters. And in that sense, I had to, I had to release that song um, just to hopefully get a few people to reevaluate the fact that we can't keep on putting new wine into this old wineskin, that, that the whole thing needs to be reevaluated. And so that was an admonishment to myself and anybody that hears it. Hey, are we using the name of the king of the universe for personal gain and for our wealth and our freedoms and our, our own agendas and our cultural dominance? And if so, man, let's turn from that. Let's turn and go the other way. You have what I would consider a very discouraging song on mm -hmm. Imago Amor, Pax Melodium. It speaks about slavery happening thousands of years ago, and taking it right up to the here and the now. When will it ever end? I don't know when it will end. 
And uh, I know what you mean by discouraging. <laughs> I reference the slave quarters at Monticello in the song mm-hmm. and the caged border, the southern border of this country in recent years. But I know that when slavery is but a mere memory, there will be celebration and there will be a remembrance of the righteous rising out of indifference. And there's always been a kernel of people who aren't okay with it in any context. You know, Moses of old, taking those small steps, and then whatever happened, as he reluctantly led a million people to their freedom across dry ground, just, you know, as the waters parted. And so, as it is discouraging to know that this thing keeps on happening, I'm not discouraged. Human history is not the story of darkness that overcomes light again and again and again. It's the story of a relentless and all-consuming, desperate, dark force trying to take away what is human and humanity, and it's failed again and again and again. And if it's failed this entire time, and that hopeful, persistent voice of peace, the pox melodium of a child in the hole of a cargo ship, or, you know, under the scepter of Ramses, like I say in the song, there's always been that hopeful resilience throughout, uncrushed, no matter how hard empires and world superpowers try to crush that beauty. And that Imagua Mort, the image of love, has never succeeded, because all you have to do is have one light shining, and darkness doesn't know what to do, and it can't perceive it. So it's an incredibly hopeful song at the same time, and it's angry too. And of course, this is something that you see up close and personal when you go overseas. And that's something that I really admire about you, because it's something I could never do. Really, I'd be an emotional wreck. So I really don't get it, David. Like, how do you keep your emotions under control? Well, I think I am an emotional wreck. (laughs) Um, That's part of why I'm gardening a lot. And it's why I'm thankful that I have an outlet. Like, I have rock and roll. I have songwriting but i'll tell you this dave i do not feel at all bashful about inviting people into this sorrow alongside with me i used to have this hesitancy but there is something about our design there's something about the way that you are so intricately and purposefully and intentionally designed that without sorrow without putting yourself intentionally in proximity with someone else's sorrow you're going to miss out on a joy that you would have never otherwise known and that sorrow doesn't have to look like this particular sorrow, but this is an intense trauma that I'm stepping into. And happiness is overrated, man. I don't need happiness. I don't need positive encouraging. But I, I do know that somehow sorrow is an ingredient of joy. You think about the new template for humanity, right? It's recognized in an individual that they called the man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. And so, in a sense, The trauma that I'm putting myself close to, I truly believe with all my heart that it's forming a far more eternal and exceeding weight of glory in me. Well, that's an interesting thought. I wouldn't have pictured that, but I can see exactly where you're coming from. And I don't know if you recognize a couple of those paraphrases. It's a concept that I've heard about in Scripture all this time that I'm now experiencing for the first time in my life. Sorrow is making me new. It's part of the process by which the new creation is becoming evident in my own life. I think I start to see that in the title track, Imago Amor. 
And it's something that you often see in really what I refer to as the poetry of Remedy Drive. Because the track says, So kiss me like an enemy and bruise me like a friend. On the other side, remember me. We live, we die, we live again. How do we reach that? How do we discover that for ourselves? I'm happy you shared that line. Dalai Lama just tweeted today. So often talk about each other as either friend or enemy. And for me, I'm spending short amount of times with with traffickers on a regular basis. And there's a tendency to, to want to give in to hatred. And there's a tendency to want to say, I would never have done that. I could never do that to another person. I'm better than that. But to recognize the humanity of that person sitting next to me and the desperate situation they're in that has caused them to do such evil things. Or in the, the case of, you know, not to pick on Thomas Jefferson, but as a sacrament of not giving into nationalism and, you know, how could he, could he have done that? And yet he still said so many beautiful things. So trying so hard not to compartmentalize and, and define somebody, as I hope you would do the same for me, as my worst moments and my worst decisions. But being able to see that there's a beauty, there's, there's still that spark, even if it's just a spark of that divine image in someone that politicians are trying to convince me are my, is my enemy or preachers are trying to convince me that's my enemy or they're at war with my way at life or um, news media outlets or pundits are trying to convince us that we're enemies with certain groups of people mm-hmm. and that they're just inherently evil rather than saying, no, that person is creating God's image. That person is created purposefully and wonderfully. And that doesn't mean I'm soft on justice. I'm not. I'm giving my life to justice. I want to see that trafficker get arrested. But it doesn't mean I still don't love that person. I wish we could all say that nowadays, because it's true that media does try to push people for emotional buttons. They want them to be angry. They want them to be incensed about something. And more so in my country, it's, it's the political powerful. And it always works to their advantage. And it's the preachers too, man. Like I, I get a lot of Christian media in my inbox. The cancel culture was started by, by Christians, right? In my country, at least. That's who taught us to like boycott and ban Starbucks or Target, whoever they're mad at in a particular week. I can't do that anymore. And I cannot define somebody by that ideological possession that creeps in. I want to, and I fail, and I do. But the whole point of a Mago Amor is is to remember. And so I take sacramental steps towards my literal neighbor that has his flags and his signs and his celebration of guns in his front yard, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I talk to him about Frisbee golf and barbecue because I won't let myself dislike him just because we don't see eye to eye on some things. It's, it's a hard practice. Because I don't, I don't think we realize how quickly we've slipped into this thing, whatever we are at today. And I'm not going to be the old man complaining about it. I'm, I'm going to be making a difference. Making a difference. You've been doing that by going undercover and dealing with traffickers. You know, and I guess everybody has heard the statement, don't shoot the messenger. But in your case, that could really be a reality. So you must be concerned about that. I'm concerned about getting poisoned or stabbed or shot as, as I'm concerned about getting in a car wreck back home. Uh, we got to live our lives. 
you know, there's a liability in, in any sort of justice work, but specifically this kind of work, there's a liability to it. And it's personal liability, it's liability to my family, to my reputation, to accusation of doing things wrong. But that's what I signed up for. Mm-hmm. You know, safe for the whole family, that's a myth. That's not true. Dr. King says, now's the time for us to develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. The last thing he said is the last three paragraphs of his speech before they shot him. He knew he shouldn't go to Memphis. He knew it was dangerous. All his, everybody told him not to, and he did it anyways because he believed in the cause. And the same with Amy Carmichael, who would dye her skin with coffee and go into temples and rescue young girls out of forced ritual prostitution. Same with Harriet Tubman. Same with Frederick Douglass. It was really, really, really unpopular and dangerous to challenge powerful plantation owners in my country. And it's not just physical danger that I'm scared of. It can be costly, man. There's people here that don't believe in Remedy Drive anymore because I'm not even sure what they mean by this, but they think I'm preaching a social gospel by saying what Jesus said, and that is, I have good news for poor people, to proclaim freedom to the captives, liberty to the prisoners, and a restoration of dignity to the oppressed and downtrodden. I mean, you, you get canceled by Christian culture down here in America just by pretty much reading a couple paragraphs from the brother of Jesus, James. You know, his half-brother said, so you see then you're not considered righteous by just believing something, by, but by what you do. And I believe that. I believe what he said. I believe it matters what I do. I'm not a theologian, but even a kid knows that. I don't care what you believe, said Jesus, the, the demons or whatever they believe, but I want to see, I want to see you, you take action. I guess it's pretty common for an artist to finish an album with a song that's making a closing statement. Imago Amor closes with the song Blue. Hmm. I'm curious about the song's story. So that same trip where I probably got COVID along with our whole team, there was one particular operation that was a multi-night operation, which is a very rare scenario to be in. And I was paired up with one of the guys on the board of the Exodus Road named Nate. And in 2014, I met these sisters that were probably about 13 and 15 named Manny and Far. And uh, one of their names literally translates to blue in our language. And so fast forward to 2020, and there's this sweetheart, just teenage girl that's in these awful environments. We're talking like back alleys and uh, dance clubs and then karaoke clubs in really seedy parts of the world. And we had a lot more time to talk to that particular girl than usual. And not me, but my friend Nate was talking to her and I had to go through a lot of the footage that we were compiling to try to convince authorities that, that this particular criminal network was running girls her age. And she was a perfect example. And she was so sweet. She was younger than my son now. She uh, was clumsy in the way she walked. Um, and something that we do for our sanity at the end of a trip like that, I was there for an extra morning. And my friend Nate was there. And he wrote this letter to Blue that he could never send. And it was so poetic. And I loved it. And I started editing his poetry and his letter and turning it into rhymes. And then I asked his permission if I could maybe try to put a, a melody to it. So Blue ends with that idea that he said, and going back to gardening again, petals once trampled underneath in gardens of broken dreams. In the early hours will open east when sunbeams descend. And if there's only one thing I could say about sex trafficking, it would be that I have a tremendous confidence that on the other side, maybe Blue will remember me. 
and will remember our kindness in the midst of such an odd situation. But for sure, she's going to meet the creator in the same way that so many girls of her profession are mentioned meeting him in a way that I can't even imagine. And I don't mind trying to create scenarios where that happens or, you know, having a prophetic imagination for her. But I know that I saw the trampled aspect, but I saw those glimpses of defiance and of hope that I love so much about girls in her predicament. And so you'll hear my daughter reprising a melody from Commodity that you hear three times on Commodity in different scenarios to close the chapter on that song. I do have one last question for you, David. Yeah. With your music and your work with the Exodus Road, have you created your legacy? I hope that these songs outlive me. I hope that some of the people I encounter who have been impacted by these songs, like the 18-year-old girl in South Dakota who told me in front of her mom that she's moving to India. Like, I don't know what she's going to accomplish, but I get to play a small role in her story as she goes to fight against trafficking in her own way. Um, and I've honestly never looked up what that word means because I know that, you know, I talk about my wife saying David is going to join the Exodus Road early on. She told Matt, and she said, this will be our legacy. Mm. Um, but it, it is love in action. Like, it's, it's the only thing I know how to do right now. And so I know that this corruption that we're up against is temporary. I know, like I said earlier, that the darkness is temporary. In the words of the prophet Daniel, he said, those who turn many towards righteousness will shine like the stars forever. And so I know there's an enduring quality to selfless actions. I know it. I don't know how to describe it. I don't know what it means. I'm not sure what I mean by eternal life. I'm, I'm not sure of any of the theology. I couldn't describe that. But I know that this work is going to outlive the very stars somehow. And I know that sounds grandiose. But I truly believe it. And I'm, I'm willing to say it out loud because I know people hearing this are going to want to jump into that momentum. It's not something I started. I'm following in the footsteps of Moses of old and the woman they called Moses here in the United States named Harriet Tubman. And I get to join in, thankfully, to that legacy that's, that's already exists. I just get to attach myself to it. And I truly believe that legacy is called the good news, the proclamation of another kingdom. Laughing in the face of world superpowers that crush the most vulnerable under their iron fist. Well, David, I want to thank you for this talk. And really, sincerely, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Dave. Thanks for being part of it, man.